You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 120. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum, episode 120. I looked back at episode 110 because I thought I had made a prediction for 120, and it turned out that I didn't make a prediction at all. Instead, I said that I hoped we wouldn't still be talking about coronavirus in 120 uh, on 110, because 110 is when everything went down. Well, my hopes are dashed today by me, because I'm going to be talking about it. But the good news is, is that I don't think the 120s in the local maximum are going to be as dominated by COVID-19 as the 110s. At least that's how it looks right now. Uh, <laughs> you never know with this thing, but uh, we will uh, we'll we'll find out. Uh, but I'm gonna gonna get it out all out of my system today. Um, some of this stuff is kind of dark, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, I try not to make this podcast too dark, but there's not a whole, whole lot I could do when it comes to COVID-19. Um, everybody is talking about what the government response should be. Some people I know want us all to stay in indefinitely. Uh, many people are are staying in, or many people are saying that it's time to open up. The lockdowns were wrong to begin with. I'm going to talk about some of the data that I've seen about this, and also the questions that are being raised in terms of policy. And whether you agree with me or not, we're going to learn some great concepts today, some great uh, kind of statistical concepts today in the uh, area of causality. That includes Simpson's Paradox, I wish it came from the cartoon The Simpsons, but it doesn't. Uh, it would be awesome if it did. Uh, but there is a lot of math in The Simpsons, but not that. Um, and uh, it's actually a, a mathematician named Simpson. And we're going to talk about causality. We're going to talk about the difference between a uh, confounder and a collider. So you might not have heard those terms before, but uh, but we'll get into it. So, uh, well, first of all, this episode is sponsored by... Ryan, I just want to mention uh, before we go, the raw internet object notation. You might think that you don't use data formats, but you do. And we're going to be talking about Ryan later on the sh- in the show, uh, which is by NanoSci and why you might want to check it out. So listen to that. All right. So let's get started with some facts. I'm just going to read, you know, read. Th- I kind of organized everything that I have uh, into um, sort, sort of a list here, and, and we're going to read them out uh, before we get into all of the concepts today and um, sort of the news that I've been reading and a little bit about what I think about it as well. Uh, we're going to start here with the U.S. and with New York City. I hope the rest of you in the world find this information valuable. I know that the whole world isn't the U.S., or, and the whole world isn't the New York City, just the center of it. But, you know, come on. Uh, all right. So the New York Times reminds us uh, that um, almost 100,000 people have died from COVID-19 in the United States. 100,000 people uh, with a cover of names, uh, ages, occupations. And, uh, and of course, not 100,000, just the U.S. There's many more worldwide My home in New York City is apparently ground zero for this. We're always ground zero for everything, it feels like, you know, whether it's, uh, well, I don't want to say Hurricane Sandy because a lot of places get hurricanes, but of course we're affected differently by Hurricane Sandy than by other places. Well, there's 9-11, of course, is the ground zero. Uh, So in New York City, we've had 16,000 deaths or about one in every 500 people. Uh, Personally, I do not know anyone who has died of this disease. 
Um, and the last few months, I've seen many closed stores, many empty streets, but no sick people. And I did know a few people who got COVID-19, mild cases. Uh, so it's hard for this fact to sink in as much as it should. I would have thought that if one out of 500 died of a disease, I would have been like, oh, I, in, in New York City, I'd be like, oh, certainly I would know people. Um, but it could be that, uh, you know, most deaths were much older. And as I look at the neighborhood map, they're, they're in much different neighborhoods. So, uh, so that could be part of it. Uh, but yeah, uh, that, 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 that's why my, even though I'm in ground zero, my experience is not, uh, is not the experience. So 100,000, how many of these people would have died anyway? Well, that's something for statisticians to work out and looking at excess deaths from COVID-19 and all of that. And it'll probably be several years before this is properly sorted out, maybe even longer than that. I'm sure we'll get some better data, maybe even in a few weeks. Uh, but there is some good news in New York City this week. Actually, there's some great news in New York City this week. And even if you go on, uh, I've been going on nyc.gov and downloading their uh, data there or just looking at their data there. I'm not downloading it, doing analysis and all that stuff. Guys, I got a job. I got to do all this stuff. But I'm looking at their data and I'm, I'm trying to make sense of it. And you could see all of the graphs, uh, and, and I'll post this all at localmaxradio.com slash 120 for you to check out. New York is recovering. Hospitalization rate, rates are way down to below 100 per day. That is for all of New York City, below 100 per day. So that's, uh, that is significant. Uh, Manhattan is doing really well here. Uh, let's look at last weekend. So not this, what is, what is this weekend? This weekend, uh, this weekend that just passed is the 24th of May is Sunday. So I'm going to look at the weekend before that. Um, but just 17 people hospitalized in a day for all of Manhattan that weekend. And that's dropping. That's dropping. Now it's going to be lower. It's going to drop less. It gets into the single digits. Um, I'm seeing about eight deaths per day in Manhattan and dropping for all of New York City on say now the the weekdays were so uh, were so let's say uh, Monday uh, May 18th I see 36 deaths and 142 hospitalizations this is fluctuating a bit so the, the and this is not final data they, they keep updating it that's why I'm not doing the latest ones because I've noticed that's been changing a lot uh, and then as you get four or five days away it stops changing so much uh, you can drill down into the neighborhoods here because it's definitely not uniform throughout New York City. Uh, and I think we see this in other countries as well. Certainly, uh, the core of the city looks like it's better. Uh, my area in downtown Brooklyn looks like it's doing a little better. Certain outer borough neighborhoods look like they are doing particularly badly. And I don't want to speculate too much on that, but it looks like you know it's areas where uh, you know people are unable to social distance as much, you know, lower income areas. But interestingly enough, not all the lower income neighborhoods are are colored with that dark color. So it's only only some of them. Um, you have outbreaks and other places you don't. And again, it's hard to explain, as we'll see in a bit. Almost all of New York State, New York State, the whole now for those of you who uh who don't who don't live in, in the United States, New York City is just a small part of New York State. New York State is uh is huge. You've got all this land uh, you know, up up in the north somewhere, and there's all this space and stuff, and 
There's some cities like Utica and Syracuse and and, and Rochester and, and Buffalo and all that. And, um, you know, no one ever goes there. No no one's ever heard of it. But, <laughs> no, but sorry, I shouldn't be so dismissive. But uh, I, there's a lot of cool stuff upstate, actually. Some great hiking, some great nature. Um, but uh, but very different from New York City. Um, all, so uh, fortunately, they have been able to open earlier. And almost all of them have started to reopen. The only ones that haven't are the two regions adjacent to New York City. That's Long Island and uh, Hudson to the north, Hudson Valley. Uh, Those two New York City adjacent regions start to open next week. And New York City, even the mayor says, maybe a week or two after that uh, in the first week of June. But it will be slow. It will be slow reopenings. They're not going to reopen all at once. It looks like... Instead of reopening all at once, they're going to open and they're going to be like, then we're going to see what's going to happen. And then if you're good, we'll uh, we'll keep reopening. But if you're not good, we're going to close you back down. So only certain things at a time, like maybe uh, I don't even know if they're going to allow us to get haircuts in the first version of the reopening because I know and I'm in Connecticut this weekend. Um, cause I started leaving the city as I realized the danger was getting less and less and they were going to open. They were going to open haircuts on Wednesday of last week and it was canceled at the last minute. Once the governor, whoever decided, said, looked at all the people who were deciding to set haircuts saying, Oh, we can't have that. So, uh, so now there's no haircuts. Fortunately, I, uh, I was able to get a haircut, uh, done uh not uh not uh, professionally but still very well very well done haircut i i received so i am i am good to go uh for a while but uh i am looking forward to having uh you know to have <laughs> having some place to go for that after a while um okay personally i believe that the state should open up New York immediately with of course caution being taken by individuals you know for example you know, haircuts would be nice, but I probably wouldn't go to a crowded haircutting place right away. I'd probably go, you know, to a place that is not, you know, that is not crowded, get a reservation and that sort of thing. And I'll tell you why I feel this way throughout the rest of the show. I'm not the main person making this point. A lot of people are are talking about why these lockdowns are no good, and which is why, you know, I don't necessarily want to rehash all their arguments. Uh, if you want a fun read, go to the New York Post End New York City's lockdown now. The New York Post, we haven't talked a lot about the New York Post on the show. Uh, the New York Post goes <laughs> it goes in phases for me. Ups of, sometimes it's it's awesome, and then sometimes it goes through years of, you know, n- nothing worth reading. But uh, but this, this one's kind of worth checking out, especially the cover. Um, maybe a counterpoint to the New York Times cover, although both of them, I think, are very powerful, powerful covers. Um, Look at what Mayor de Blasio says, ABC News. Uh, He clearly doesn't agree with the New York Post. He said in one of his briefings here, we're not opening the floodgates all at once. We've seen other places do that, and they've paid dearly for it. Interestingly, he would not say which places did that and which places paid dearly for it. Because so far, none of the states that have loosened restrictions have experienced any kind of second wave or experienced any spike. Now, it doesn't mean they won't in the future, but for some of them, it's been over a month. So I don't want to hear any of that, you know, just wait two weeks, you'll see Georgia's going to be really bad talk because that's uh, that's not what's happening now. You gotta, you've got to update your beliefs when more data comes in and more data has been coming in and it looks like 
uh, ending these lockdowns hasn't been correlating with any spikes or problems or anything like that. One of the biggest sources of cases and deaths, unfortunately, has been nursing homes in the New York City area. Uh, New York nursing homes are responsible for 20%, responsible as in they cover 20% of all fatalities in New York. And the data that I've seen here in the New York Times, they have uh, an article about this. In New Jersey, it's over 50%. So I don't know, that tells us something about uh, you know what is you know how these outbreaks are taking place and and what's what's going on here. Um, all right, now what about the start of the lockdowns? And now we're talking about the end date of the lockdowns. But what about the start date of the lockdown? The New York Times is a very interesting article here as well. And I know I'm drawing a lot from the New York Times in many different areas. And you know some of it's some of it's great. Some of it I take some issue with. This is one of the ones I take some issue with. They have this headline. Lockdown delays led to at least 36,000 more deaths, model fine. Now, I've always expected, I always suspected that the politicians would, uh, you know, what they would do is they would take a long time to actually uh, take action. Meanwhile, the, the, the time that they waited from like March 5th to March 16th, something like that, um, when we had the first cases in, in New York City, all the way to when they locked down, that's when the big exponential growth took place. And that is when uh, they didn't really take a whole lot of action. Um, and maybe they couldn't take action. Maybe they're still figuring out what was going on. I don't necessarily blame them. But that could have been the time that was critical, that was very important. And now that we have lockdown, they're not taking any chances and, uh, you know, they're kind of stuck in this has to be the right policy. So now they're going to drag their feet in terms of getting us off the lockdown policy. So wrong on both ends, possibly. Um, OK, so this headline says the lockdown delays led to at least 36,000 more deaths than otherwise would have occurred. Very um very odd claim. Notice that these, I looked into the models a little bit. These are not the models discussed in episode 115, which are from the IHME. These are new models. They're from Columbia University. They're from the Department of Environmental Health Services, uh, Mailman School of Public Health. Mailman School of Public Health. I don't know if I've heard them. Uh, Columbia University. Uh, They actually are SIR models, susceptible, infected, removed. Those are typically what epidemiological models are based off. Very, I mean, now this one is not just a simple SIR model. It's actually very complex, uses a lot of data, a lot of moving parts. It includes mobility data. It includes Markov models, all that stuff, uh, that or Kalman filters. Uh, so it is a very sophisticated model in that sense. Um, so in one hand, I've suspected that if individuals did more to protect themselves sooner, we'd be in better shape. But something about this claim is very fishy. First of all, they gave us an exact number, 36,000. And it just, it stands to reason to me that uh, a model like this cannot give an exact number like that. So they're either taking some kind of a point estimate or, um, yeah, they're, they're just, they're running it once and seeing where it leads. I don't know. Um, and of course, now, after 
several months, we have a whole graveyard full of incorrect models, incorrect models and in how many hospitalizations we're going to need in New York, how many uh, ventilators we're going to need in New York, we're giving away the ventilators now. We were told a few uh, months ago, like, you know, we're, we're going to have uh, all these ventilators shortage. Um, and so the question I ask is, uh, you know, I asked is, do these models account for the states that reopened and didn't um, or didn't lock down as much to begin with and um, didn't get that, that spike that was expected. And so they did run a counterfactual simulation to get this. This counterfactual simulation just means that they run the model on what happened, they set the parameters, and then they run the model again with uh, different assumptions of what happened. But they need better model selection because they say here that we focus on several metropolitan areas with large populations. That's for their training data. They don't talk a lot about how they got their training data. And so they're focusing on places like, I guess, New York and um, what are large metropolitan areas, uh, L.A., Chicago, uh, D.C. Um, so the algorithm is not learning, I think, from the examples where less lockdowns lead to less deaths. And so I can't take their number too seriously. If you guys want to see how the United States is recovering from the coronavirus, well, not, not recovering in terms of being sick and being well, but in terms of... Uh, you know, which types, in terms of the economy, which types of places are working uh, more, which types of places people are going to less. Check out something that I've been working on a little bit, which is the Foursquare Recovery Index. All right, my team's working on that. Um, not the, not my team that I run, but the team that I'm on. <laughs> Data for uh, the U.S. by category and region. You can actually check this out, foursquare.com slash recovery index. So you could see it's basically, it's just raw data. It's not a complicated model or anything like that. So, for example, you'll see from May to February, beaches are way up. It's not because uh, the coronavirus has driven everyone to the beaches. It's because, well, there's a big difference between February and May in New York on the beaches. But you could see, well, how much down are, you know, restaurants? How about grocery stores? Things like that. And you can look by city, by region. So that's been very helpful to uh, people to understanding what's going on from an economic sense. So, when we return, we'll talk about comparing countries and states. How can you compare them? We'll talk about Simpson's paradox, and we'll talk about causality. But first, I want to tell you about Ryan, R-I-O-N. I am very thankful for them to sponsor the show. You might think that you don't use data formats, but you do. If you're a software engineer or a data scientist, you might think that you're not in the market for data formats, but guess what? You are. How you store and transfer your data can make your life easier or harder. It can make it faster or slower. It could be more expensive or less expensive. So if you want to learn about data formats and make some improvements, I encourage you to check out Ryan, R-I-O-N, Raw Internet Object Notation. If you need to export, import, store or exchange large amounts of data on a regular basis, then you can benefit from a compact, fast, and versatile data format. Ryan is a binary format, which is both compact and fast to read and write. A data structure serialized to Ryan requires on average 20 to 50% fewer bytes than the same data structure serialized to JSON. Who uses JSON? Everybody uses JSON. I use JSON. So maybe you can do better than that. The fewer bytes also translates into 20 to 50% faster read and write speeds. Ryan can be parsed into objects, which are then processed or processed, processed directly in its binary form. 
When processed in its binary form, you can achieve processing speeds of up to 10x the speed of parsing Ryan into objects first and processing the objects. You can learn more about Ryan at tutorials.jenkoff.com, uh, J-E-N-K-O-V.com slash Ryan, R-I-O-N. But you could also get all the links at localmaxradio.com slash 120. All right. Now, a lot has been said about Sweden, because Sweden is one of the a few examples of a no lockdown policy or a light lockdown policy, maybe better to be called a voluntary policy. Um, and the comparison is, well, there's a lot of disagreement online on what the right comparison for Sweden is. Should Sweden be compared to Norway only? Because if Sweden is compared to Norway only, Norway has had much fewer deaths. And so the argument goes that the only fair comparison for Sweden is Norway. And that any other comparison, like the UK, Belgium, or France, that has had a much higher case rate, a much higher number of deaths despite being locked down, is an unfair comparison. So, uh, well, that's you might say, okay, there are some similarities to Norway and, and Sweden that maybe make them uh, more comparable. But how could you dismiss all of those others, uh, you know, right out, right off the bat. If you think that there are specific confounders in those other countries, you know, show a graph of the confounders. Like, what is it about the UK or what is it about Belgium that makes it different from Sweden? Is it that, uh, and, and, not, and, not, and makes it different from Norway? Is it just they're not Scandinavian? Because I didn't know that the virus attacks uh, or like, you know, uh, has has a different rules for Scandinavians and for everybody else. It doesn't make any sense. So now it could be that um, the virus attacks people of different ages. It could be different uh, genetic uh, factors. It could be climate factors, things like that. And maybe you could argue that uh, Sweden and Norway is a fair comparison. But if that's the argument, then you need to measure those confounders. So, for example, I would pick age buckets, median population density, and median income, and maybe climate, and then maybe start to break, do the breakdowns in terms of uh, spread rate or in terms of case rate by those, and then see if you see this, the differences in those countries that you're expecting. But just to say, oh, Sweden and Norway is comparable, and I'm not going to tell you what the underlying uh, factor is, uh, then that um, that th- that doesn't go far enough. That doesn't prove anything. Just to take it back to you know my neck of the woods, woods, which is let's say uh, New England. Let's look at Connecticut versus Rhode Island versus Massachusetts. For those of you outside the New York, the the U.S., if you look at the Northeast U.S., you see all those little small states up there. Yeah, they all have names. Those are some of the names. Okay, those are also a fair comparison because. Connecticut and Rhode Island, Massachusetts are very similar states, and they have had there have been some differences in policy, uh, but I'm not quite sure what it is. Rhode Island has a much lower case rate and death rate of coronavirus than uh, Connecticut or Massachusetts. Rhode Island is very paranoid about New Yorkers coming in. Maybe that's why. Uh, Rhode Island was also later to lock down, and and I think I see it's earlier to reopen. So it's almost. Uh, reversed causality there, uh, you know, in terms of what you would expect if that if Rhode Island locked down uh, early, uh, later, if, if Rhode Island had less of a lockdown, you would expect more 
cases in Rhode Island, but that's not the case. Rhode Island did not have as much spread. Um, and Rhode Island, by the way, Rhode Island is the smallest state in terms of area, but it's a very dense state, um, and it's you know most a lot of its population is in the city of Providence, which is. Uh, you know, a, a decent-sized city. There are crowds and things like that in there. Maybe it's not like Boston or New York, but still. All right, so, uh, you know, I'm looking at some tweets on Sweden. Uh, it looks like that this deaths in Sweden are very low for those under 65, so it's hard to kind of... Uh, there's one tweet that suggests it's statistically insignificant for those under 65, so that's interesting. Um, so another thing that I wonder is whether the death rate is dependent on how you protect the old. I mean, that seems to, uh, you know, go hand in hand with the, you know, what we see here in the U S with all the nursing home deaths, which is, I mean, I, you know, I hate when people say, oh, those people are going to die anyway. Like, yeah, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're old, but that doesn't mean you're going to die next week. You know, it, it, people can live uh, years and years and in, 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 in their old age. But, uh, yeah, th this could be very dangerous when, um, when put into, uh, nursing homes. Um, so let's look at Simpson's paradox for a second. Uh, so that's the one that I mentioned before and that I wanted to talk about when you're talking about comparing, uh, different States and different regions, always watch out for something called Simpson's paradox. Um, because uh, when it comes to confounders, and I guess I haven't defined confounders yet, uh, Simpson's paradox is always something you want to look at, look out for. Uh, let's let's use an example. Let's use um, let's say two countries, um, and let's say one of them has a much higher rate of the virus than the other. Uh, country A has higher rate of virus than country B. But then let's say that we divide it into age buckets. Let's say we have like old, middle, and young age buckets. And then in the second country, we have old, middle, and young age buckets. And it turns out if we compare age bucket to age bucket, rate by rate, um, the country, I don't even remember which country I had the higher one. I think it was A. A okay, let's say A had the higher rate overall, but it could be that B beats A in every age bucket. So if you look at the young, B had a higher rate than A. If you look at the middle, B had a higher rate than A. If you looked at the old, B had a higher rate than A. But if you compare them all together, A had a higher rate of or death rate and virus rate than B. Isn't that crazy? How could that be? That confuses a lot of people, especially if you're sniping with people all day on Twitter. They're not going to get that. And so what's going on there is is that one age is is being affected by the virus much more. One age group is being affected by the virus a lot more. And then the country uh, that is then one country has a lot more older people in it and then another country has a lot more younger people in it and so the country that has the older people will look like it's doing a lot worse but when you compare age group to age group it might actually be doing better uh you know per per the description of the person so the age here is the is the confounder so that is um that that can happen a lot on causality, and that's why it's important to bucket things, and uh, to bucket by uh, you know to, uh, to to separate out data by potential confounders, which are you know potential descriptions of people in this case that could affect uh, the 
A, the rate of transmission of the virus. And well, the rate of transmission in, in this case is um, is very is complex because this talks about interactions between people. But if you're just talking about the, the death rate from people who catch the virus, that's another thing that certainly age is a big, big factor in that. Um, and so you definitely want to look at those stratified comparisons instead of the comparisons of the whole thing. Um, okay, so in causality, a confounder is a problem that you need to solve. But there's a paper out there recently I read by Norman Fenton, Risk Information Management, Queen Mary University, that shows colliders are a problem as well. Oh, God. Okay, now you have, in causality, you have confounders, now you have colliders. What is the difference? What is a confounder? What is a collider? So here's the an example of confounder. Uh, you know... We want to know whether being a healthcare worker affects, uh, you know, whether you uh, contract COVID-19. Well, obviously, the confounder is, do you have contact with COVID-19 patients? Obviously, healthcare workers with contact with COVID-19 patients are going to have a much different story than healthcare workers who do not have contact with COVID-19 patients. Here's an example of a collider. Uh, so here, like, you know, it's being a health or care worker causes you to come in contact with COVID-19 patients, causes you to contract COVID-19 yourself. So a confounder is kind of like an intermediate cause. Here's an example of a collider. The likelihood of getting tested can rely both on your age and on whether you have COVID-19. So I am trying to predict what is the, um, you know, what is your uh, uh, effect of your age on whether you have COVID-19 in a population. Maybe older people have it more than younger people or something like that. The problem is that the likelihood of getting tested uh, is affected both by your age and whether you actually have it. Because if you have it, you have symptoms, you're more likely to get tested. If you're older, and you have symptoms, you're more likely to get tested than if you get younger and you have the same symptoms, maybe. Um, so now notice that getting tested does not affect whether you have the virus or not. Getting tested does not affect your age or not. So it's a collider because it's something that isn't in the causal chain of what you're trying to discover, but it's sort of, it's outside the causal chain, but it's what you have to be looking at. It's what you're measuring and it's affected by both sides in the causal chain. So it makes it very difficult to measure. Here's the conclusion of the paper. Uh, in the absence of sufficient random testing data, the options are to either carry on using simple statistical analysis that produces misleading or flawed conclusions, um, which could happen, you know, if you rely on these tests, which are a self-selected, you know, self-selected group. Um, so the option is either to do that, just continue being wrong, or explicitly incorporate the causal structure, as proposed in this paper, to take into account of colliders and confounders. Unless those undertaking statistical analysis of COVID-19 data join the causal re revolution promoted by Pearl and others, politicians and decision makers will continue to be fed conclusions from statistical analysis that lack validity and may be fundamentally flawed. So here's something to think about. When you're looking at people sniping at each other on Twitter or on message boards or on Instagram or whatever, Reddit, uh, 
they're not taking into account either colliders or confounders. Um, maybe sometimes they are, but it's, man, this is a rabbit hole that goes deep. And this is why, you know, a lot of this stuff takes a lot of time to study it and to kind of figure out what all the different angles are, uh, you know, w when you're trying to gain these insights from data. And that's why, you know, a lot of these arguments are now being ideologically driven, um, including mine to an extent, but I'm trying to base it on the data as well. But, um, you know, if you look at it, the, the, the data story is a lot tougher than, than it's often made out to be. Here's an interesting story. William Briggs, a statistician, he posted, he made a post. Uh, there is no evidence lockdowns save lives. It's indisputable. They caused great harm. Now, if I'm going to post link to this post on localmaxradio.com slash 120 because there's a lot of great graphs here. I'm also going to link to some people posting on Twitter graphs. And I know I've talked about people, all the people sniping on Twitter and Medium and all that, but that's just things to keep in mind. I'm still going to read this, but... Man, all of these graphs just look like scatter plots. There is no correlation at all. So he asked, does, you know, um, it, it, it doesn't appear that if you look at place, if you graph places by these are the places that have had lockdowns, these are the places that have not had lockdowns, these are the places that have had outbreaks, these are the places that have not had outbreaks, look at the severity of each one, graph it out, you get a scatter plot completely random. And so... What's happening here? Uh, does the you know does severity cause lockdowns? It doesn't appear to be the case. I mean, it could be the 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 other way. I mean, so d do lockdowns affect the severity of the virus? I was asking, but then can you flip it around and can you say does the severity of the virus cause lockdowns? Like if the virus is se severe somewhere, maybe that would cause the government to lock down, and then it causes the politicians to say, "Hey, we are in control of this. We are." going to enact policies that will uh, change the outcome here, but really they have no control whatsoever. And because they, they have no control whatsoever, but they need to appear like they have control, so they implement the lockdowns. I think this is a case of too many confounders, no controlled experiments. Not even Scandinavia is a controlled experiment in this case. This sort of confirms what Israeli the Israeli statistician uh, Ben... Ben Israel, <laughs> Israeli statistician, said in episode 115, looks like after, you know, 70 days or so, the virus tends to wind down. A lot of people are saying, hey, it's not really 70 days. Well, yeah, sometimes it's greater, sometimes it's less. Um, also, it's not going to be 70 days for all of the United States because certain areas are starting earlier and certain areas are starting later. Like certain areas are kind of on the upswing now, whereas New York is on the downswing. But if you count the United States as a whole, then it's going to look very different. A lot of people look at the graph, the United States as a whole, and they say, oh, look, the United States is, uh, you know, is plateauing at a very high rate. But if you drill down, that's not what's going on at all. You see New York going down and then things starting up elsewhere. And then, uh, and then those are starting to go down as well. But, you know, if you have two kind of bumps that you're adding together, you sort of get a plateau there. But that's uh, that's that's not the story that people are making out to be. The story they're making out to be is this virus is just sticking around and not going away. And that is totally not uh, bared out by the data. All right. So what what's going on there? How is this possible? If you're going to say the lockdown policies don't have much of an effect on the transmission of the virus. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem logical, uh, you know, because. 
we do know that the virus is spread by people who come in close close contact with each other. Um, if you're particularly indoors at a party, we know it spreads like that. Uh, we're not so sure about surfaces and things like that. It looks like it's the, the danger is maybe less than we thought. To, but, you know, look, it, it, it just stands to reason that if people are not going to parties, not seeing other people, and in fact, if you lock yourself in your home and don't see anybody else, then you're not going to catch this thing. So how is it possible that the lockdown policies don't have much of an effect? So I, I do have an, I, I have a hypothesis. I think that aggregated, I think that individuals are reading the news. Individuals are smarter than we think they are, at least on an aggregated level. And I think that aggregated individual action beats top-down control of what the political uh, leaders say we should do every single time. So this is an example, maybe, of wisdom of the crowd. That's when maybe not everyone is so uh, so smart or so wise, but when you take individual actions and add them all together, then you get something that uh, that works well. An example of that would be markets, you know, finding the prices. You know, not everyone is good at shopping for a certain item, uh, but if you have not everybody is good at selling and setting the prices of a certain item but when you have a lot of people together some people are too high some people are too low markets tend to figure that thing out another example of wisdom of the crowd is something like you know well elections they say or maybe wikipedia or something like that where not everybody has the full uh uh, elections is going to be a controversial one, I just realized. But, well, look, not everyone has the full picture, but if you have kind of group decision-making, you get uh, a good answer at the end. Now, sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes you don't get a good uh, a good result when it's sort of you rely on wisdom of the crowd. But I think in this case we are. I think that um, when you give people the freedom to do reasonable things while reducing or even eliminating their risk, I think that people's intuitions, uh, you know, some people are going to be too cautious. They're going to stay in more than they need. Some people are not going to be cautious enough, um, but everybody is going to be listening to the news and, you know, reading what experts have to say uh, and, you know, kind of following their own experts and looking at their personal experience and seeing if it matches up. And in aggregate, I think you actually get a full, uh, a, a better policy or better, you know, a, a better outcome. I think when people have the freedom to do, you know, maybe more people would have the freedom to go to work and they'd be like, well, I come in contact to, with, uh, with certain people at work, but I can kind of mitigate that by wearing a mask. And on the other end, now I can, um, now that I have, uh, you know, extra income, I can, you know, take other precautions. I don't know. The, the other extra income does help. I mean, it does, it means maybe I can, you know, help someone else, uh, you know, take care of, uh, of, of someone who needs to, or maybe I can, you know, make sure that, um, you know, certain family members are taken care of. I don't know, all of that. Uh, so I think that, um, people's intuitions uh, overall. And, you know, maybe it's, it's hard to see because the individual person might not be smart, but people's intuitions in aggregate are better than the vacillating recommendations that we see from the World Health Organizations or the CDC or the president or the president's critics, all that stuff. In conclusion, uh, if we were facing 
incontrovertible statistical proof that millions or even thousands of people would lose their lives if we didn't force businesses to close and people to act according to the wishes of the governor and the president, then the righteousness of such decision would be subject to an ethical debate. But that is not the decision that we're making. Uh, We are instead forcing people to close their businesses and act according to the wishes of the governor and the president, which really are the wishes of the experts who have spent years working their way up the academic political ladder. And on the other end, we have, after two months, no hard evidence that this is saving any lives. They're trying to prove this link in retrospect, as the Columbia report and the New York Times shows, but that report still does not demonstrate any causal link between lockdown or lives or even correlation. Uh, If such a causal link existed, it would be highly likely to have presented itself in the data by now, Um, unless you have a case where there are so many confounders, uh, which is probably the case. But in that case, the causal link is statistically, uh, statistically lost. So this changes the ethical equation dramatically in terms of what to do when you're asking yourself, do I close down millions of businesses? We've been conditioned to think that our fellow Americans and our fellow human beings around the world are lazy and ignorant and full of either horrible and reckless people who will just spread the virus at the drop of a hat if it weren't for our wise leader. But Instead of focusing on our our wise leaders, I should say, I'm picking on one person, but instead of focusing on the few specific examples of of this behavior, maybe trust the vast majority of people care about themselves, their family, their friends, their community, and will at least in aggregate make better decisions about how to manage this risk and this, you know, this, this, this disaster than the leaders and the experts. All right. With that, next week, I'm going to bring back Aaron. We'll have a little fun. And I'm going to be talking more about the tech industry. Uh, let's get back to the tech industry. Uh, and hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll get into some other stuff like visual design over the next few weeks. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.